You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. We're very pleased to have um, Dr. Timothy Brook, uh, author of the book Quelling the People, about the Tiananmen Massacre. It was uh, June 4th, 1989, and um, Dr. Brooke is an expert on China as well. Spent a lot of time there. Wrote this book, which I read years ago, Quelling the People. Some people have forgotten about the Tiananmen Massacre, and it's not as uh, discussed much, but it sort of has been an impact on what's occurred um, for the future of China in examining the past. So I just want to say thank you, Dr. Brooke, for coming on the program. Well, I'm uh, very pleased to do so, and I'm I'm pleased that... uh that you and others uh, want to remember what happened in 1989. Could you please tell me, uh, you were in Tiananmen Square shortly afterwards, I, if I believe, um, and you did a lot of research. You went to the hospitals. You explored exactly what happened, how many people were involved. Is that correct? Um, yes. Um, maybe let me just back up a little bit. I was in China through that previous winter uh, doing research, and I actually went home in May. So I went home a month before the massacre. Uh, I watched what happened on June 4th on television in Toronto and um, then decided I really needed to go back and figure out more of what was going on. So I went back in September uh, 1989 and, yes, talked to people, visited sites. I was on the square, collected information, um, and tried to piece together what happened because uh, um, at the time, the political commentators all had a great deal to say, but uh, I figured, well, I'm a historian. I've got certain kinds of tools. I can put this event together and really understand the broader context. So that's what I went back to China to do. You've really written a number of books about classical China, Chinese history, is, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, so yes, you have... yes I'm, a, I'm a, really a specialist in the 16th century. Um, I've written one other book on the 20th century, but my, my work is more in the, uh, in the imperial period. But uh, when... Um, maybe this will be uh, hard for some of your listeners to uh, to perhaps uh, immediately recognize. But when 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 the massacre happened in 1989, I was so uh, involved with China that I was I was just um, shocked, uh, disappointed, really thrown off my own balance by what the Chinese government had done to the people. And so I set my, my classical research aside for two years to research and write this book. I, I felt it was something that I had the skills to do, and I felt somebody had to do it. Somebody had to make a record of what had happened. So, Dr. Brooke, I'll just give a brief summary, then you can obviously add to it if you would. It's, it's June 4th. There's the death of the Communist uh, Secretary Hugh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher his last name. I'll let you say it. And then uh, Chinese people, um, they're celebrating democracy. They're hoping for a change. There was a democracy movement. In the late 70s, I believe also in that time period, the troops uh, move in, I think something like 150,000 troops. Most of the people killed are not killed in the square, but in the streets leading to the square. That's my brief summary. I'll let you uh, obviously add to it, please. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's um, that's roughly what happened. The uh, um, uh, there there had been a certain amount of unrest. It was it started out very much as a student thing. Um, students were um, there was unrest among the students in the 1980s. There, it was not clear what their prospects were going to be after they graduated from university. Um, there was a, a rise in corruption of the sort that China hadn't seen for decades, and um, um, the, the tinder caught fire over the death of Hu Yaobang, who was a uh, uh, had been the secretary general of the Communist Party, was viewed as as somewhat uh, sympathetic and favorable to the students, and uh, one thing very quickly led to another. The um, eventually the government decided it has to send in soldiers to to uh, put down the student demonstrations, um, and uh, there were thousands of people killed as a result. Okay, and let me just briefly refer to your book and some of the interesting things, or many interesting points, but some of them I thought were soldiering in China was not really considered as honorable career as, say, being a scholar, because the scholars were used to govern such a, a large country. Is, is that basically correct? I mean, scholarship was held in yes. high, more high degree? Okay. And dur- yes, there, there, there's an old saying in China, don't use, good metal to, uh, don't use good metal to make a nail, and don't use a good man to make a soldier. <laughs> um, okay. Soldier, soldiering was... Uh, it's it was uh, had no social status. Um, now this 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 started to change at the beginning of the 20th century as China begins to develop institutions of a kind of in, on an international standard. They have to revisit the army. They have to turn the army into something of a more honorable professional uh, organization. But but they don't really. So so and this is sort of true today still. But in 1989, if you were going to be a soldier. You were probably a country boy. You had little education. You had no opportunity for social advancement. You go into the army. They take care of you. To some extent, they train you. Although um, it was really a mass army in the 1980s. This is where you you went to get technical training. You could, but um, you were. It, it was a low social status, low paying job. Uh, but if you needed a job, then you ended up in the army. Okay, just another background question. I could, then I'm going to ask you some more contemporary questions about the massacre. Um, you mentioned during the Warring States period, which I think is roughly 475 to 221 BC, before China is united by the great first emperor um, some 2,000 years ago, that there was tremendous um, fighting, of course, and chivalry was not held in high regard. The main thing was winning. Chivalry was like a concept of the West, and I guess I guess you would argue that that sort of concept carried forward to what happened in 1989. Uh Yes, it's it's a little difficult to make these comparisons because there's so much else that gets embedded in this sort of thing. Um, at a broad stroke, yes, Chinese strategy is about um, is about winning, and you do everything you can to win. So any form of restraint or respect for, say, the rights or lives of soldiers, uh, that's just not going to be there. We have to remember that there's a certain strain of this in uh, in the West as well. Machiavelli famously uh, felt that you could do anything that uh, allowed you to win. Um, there is, There has been a, this sort of counter, counter tradition in the West of uh, chivalry, of respecting the rights of soldiers. Um, but, you know, that's, that's really a tradition that's more uh, in the officer corps. And uh, down among the down among the grunts, um, war is war, and uh, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to make too much of that. And I have to say that the, the conduct of the Chinese soldiers 
that were sent in to quell the, re- the, the rebellion in Tiananmen were, um, many of them behaved very well. Uh, they were under immense pressure. I think most of them didn't want to be there. Most of them were country boys who'd never been in a city like Beijing. I'm sure it was very disorienting for them. Can I just interrupt you, Professor? Um, didn't Deng yeah. make, a, make a point of bringing in people so they had everyone involved in different regions of the country who could participate in the massacre or in, the, in what it, happened? It, it, exactly. What, what Deng Xiaoping, uh, who was the leader at the time, what he did is, is realize that if he was going to do this, if he was going to use military force to suppress citizens... He didn't want to set something up whereby one part of the army did it and the other part didn't, and then those parts of the army could could sort of compete against each other later on. He wanted to implicate everybody in the suppression of the democracy movement. So, yes, he brought in units from every group army throughout the country to make sure there was a kind of unity within the military about what was going on. Because, frankly, uh, his officer corps was not happy about pulling this duty. The, the People's Liberation, Liberation Army has this, this uh, tradition within itself of being the great force for carrying out the Chinese Revolution and, and achieving China's independence all over again. So the idea of going in and, and suppressing your own people was something that does, did not sit well with the officer corps. So, so this made it a rather difficult operation for Deng Xiaoping. He had to... He had to uh, make sure everybody's hands got dirty so nobody could say, my hands are clean. And how close would you, given what you said earlier about a lot of the soldiers not being happy about this, and uh, how close was China to a civil war, to people not obeying the orders to do what happened? How close was that occurring? I think probably not all that close. There were, there were, uh, there were uh, factions inside the army that was very unhappy about this. But in the end, um, most armies, most officer corps fall into line when they have to, and, um, and that's, that's what happens. I mean, there, there's some speculation, and I write about this in the book. It's a bit speculative. Uh, but I got this from, um, from uh, foreign military attaches who were there in Beijing at the time. There's some speculation that one of the armies might, was, was in fact um, uh, sort of setting itself up to maybe go after one of the other armies, but in in the end, uh, nothing nothing came of it. Okay, um, how many people do you think died in the square? A few thousand? Is that about with about approximately one hundred fifty thousand soldiers? Is that roughly? Um, there were the, the rumors were flying immediately about how many people were killed. It was very difficult to figure this out. I think I come up with an estimate of about two thousand six hundred people. Um, the difficulties were that most of the killing happened off camera and out of Tiananmen Square. Very few people were killed in Tiananmen Square, even though we talk about the Tiananmen Massacre. Um, most of the deaths happened on the approach roads coming into the city. And frankly, most of the deaths were not students. They were ordinary citizens of Beijing who were so appalled at what was going on that they flooded down into the streets and uh, got in the way of, of the military units. Uh, so it's very hard to get a statistic. No, st- no official statistic has ever leaked out of China. And the way I went about it was to count the number of hospitals and then try and get reports out of some of those hospitals about how many casualties they were receiving, and then from that build up a kind of cumulative total. So 2,500 people. Um, I could be off by a huge order. There, there's just no way to say. The government has clamped down on any information about Tiananmen, so thoroughly, in fact, 
that most young Chinese people growing up today have no idea what happened. They barely know anything occurred. They have no sense of what the context was. Um, and it's created this curious gap between people of my generation, I'm in my 60s, and the young people coming up in their, in their, in their teens and 20s, um, where my generation in China knows what happened and is still very unhappy with it. But this younger generation are just sort of coming up in a fog. They don't have the faintest idea of what their government did to its own citizenry. So, Professor Brook, um, when I mention, obviously, Tiananmen Square to people, when I talk about China with Chinese people, and I've been to China several times, I, I think I mentioned to you um, when we were speaking before, people say, well, and you read Professor Vogel's book at, of Harvard, who wrote a book, a biography of Deng Xiaoping. Essentially, the argument is that uh, I, I believe Deng Xiaoping's son was thrown out the window during the Cultural Revolution, and that he basically did not like disorder. And the Communist Party, and he especially, when he started his reforms in the late 70s and looked at Singapore as a model, had raised tens of millions of people out of poverty, and then uh, obviously, probably several hundred million people have been raised out of it, even in the last 30 years after Tiananmen Square. And essentially, the argument is that it was worth it. China is a very hard place to govern. It's it's not like Taiwan, where there is, you know, it's more of a democracy, but there's many different regions and ethnic groups. And basically, you needed a strong man, and it was essentially justified to kill a couple thousand people to, you know, help hundreds of millions. How, how would you respond to that? It's an argument that I understand. It's an argument I've heard made. In fact, I've talked to Ezra Vogel about this quite directly. Um, he's an old friend, and we, we, we managed to uh, agree to disagree. But I think the, this kind of argument, that, that you have to use military force against unarmed citizens, um, collapses as a moral argument. It must always collapse as a moral argument. You don't need to kill people in order to get them to do what you want. Yes, Deng Xiaoping uh, may have may have contributed a great deal to China's stability and China's prosperity. That's undeniable. But um, there are a range of choices you have as a leader. And if one of your choices becomes killing your own citizens, you've made a mistake. Doesn't mean that Deng Xiaoping didn't didn't achieve something for China. But I think this was a a, a very fundamental error that um, could have been avoided. There are many ways to control populations without killing them and without sending them uh, sending in the army so so um, I don't buy that argument I, I think China would be where it is without having gone through Tiananmen do you think it was de- deliberately done sort of on an overkill basis to send a message and to do what they thought would stop any future riots from spreading to other cities and or the whole country it was was it deliberately sort of an overreaction um, absolutely. I think you've got it absolutely right. There, the, the first concern was to, how are we going to deal with what's going on in Beijing, but there were similar demonstrations going on in a hundred other cities in China by the time June 4th came around. So there was great concern. I mean, well, the, the, I think the issue is this. It's not would the Chinese government have collapsed or fallen or whatever. The question is would the Communist Party have collapsed or fallen? And um, for all his state-building credentials, Deng Xiaoping was ultimately the leader of a communist party. The communist party maintains a dictatorship in China. It's a term that that party itself uses. 
Um, so I, I'm not making a judgment here. I'm just using the language that the Communist Party uses. It runs a dictatorship in China for the benefit of the leadership of the party. Um, the language is very much benefiting the people, but the reality is that the billions of dollars that are sucked out of the economy and put in Swiss bank accounts are not bank accounts owned by ordinary Chinese. It's the leadership of the Communist Party that has done this. So I would um, I, I soft-pedal this issue in the book. I'm I'm not out to 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 uh, uh, to create a kind of ideological uh, conflict here, but it, but it seems to me very clear that Deng Xiaoping acted in the interests of the Communist Party, not in the interests of the people of China. Interesting. Well, another point you say in the book too, I think, along those lines, that Mao's ideology was kind of replaced; his revolutionary ideology was replaced with sort of a competent technocratic type thing from Deng Xiaoping to basically right. you know get wealthy right. and do. And that, in a way, I think you you sort of allude that undermined to a degree, the Communist Party, and and perhaps, I mean, that was one of the reasons they reacted so brutally to this. Yes. The, Deng oversaw this, this transition from the revolutionaries to the technocrats. And um, if you're a Communist Party that wants to hold power, you have to do that. You can't wage revolution forever. It, it sputters out and dies. So you need to create a strong state uh, system, a strong military, a strong police force. You need to create all the institutions that will that will be run not by wild-eyed revolutionaries but by technocrats most of the 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 most of the people in the central committee in China have engineering degrees they're very much uh uh it's a very much a kind of engineering idea that you just get all the pieces lined up right it's going to work um so so yes uh the the original ideas of chairman mao were completely thrown out and uh, this new technocratic elite has taken control. So, so my question, Dr. Brooke, is basically for the future of China. And one of the things you said is that you can't really have much of a trust uh, if you did a future if you deny the past. And obviously, the Chinese government mm-hmm. does deny the past, and yet they've been arguably pretty successful. I mean, even though China really doesn't have rule of law, doesn't have democracy. If you look at India, which doesn't, ha- which has some rule of law and has democracy, um, they have uh, they're less of a GDP than. Um, England, and yet China has now the second largest economy in the world without really lessening up any of the oppression. Would you just explain that because of the hard work of the Chinese? Obviously, they are they do steal some technology, but it's just that the tremendous competence of the people that, that has allowed that to occur? Oh, this is a very difficult question. It's, it, it's, uh, it's, unfortunately, it's too easy to sort of jump to what the, the, the answer is, and I think the, the answer is a hugely complicated one. There is, first of all, just the problem of scale. China is off the charts and has always been off the charts. Uh, a huge state, a huge population, a huge state organization that's overseeing the population. Um, so, uh, in, in a sense, China is China faces the, the difficult problems of being a huge state, but it also has enormous resources. Um, Chinese culture is amenable to hard work, um, and as long as people feel they're, they're going to get the fruits of their labor, they're going to work very hard. Um, but I think there's no one formula. History, you, you can't sort of roll history back and do it again. It's only what's happening at the moment. So um, I'm, I certainly don't think that the suppression of the democracy movement was an essential component to create the, what, what China has got today. Um, I think that was a mistake. And, but one of the problems we have looking back is that it, it's hard to say, well, what was a mistake and what wasn't? Because, yes, China has a huge economy. Um, uh, 
China is managing very well to um, to uh, to project its presence around the world economically, militarily, strategically, in terms of intelligence gathering. So China has been very successful. Whether it's the success that in the long run is going to be good for the world or for the Chinese people, well, that decision is still out, and um, we're, we're going to just have to keep watching and seeing what's happening. And just looking back at Chinese history, which obviously you know far better than myself, but it, as far as democracy movements, the only one that I could really think of is the overthrow of the Mings in 1911, and then there was a brief military in the 1913 in Sun Yat-sen, whose, whose relative actually was in my class at Brown, interestingly enough. But, oh. but, but that's the only thing I can—I mean, has there been much of a Chinese democracy movement prior to 1913, or— well, no, because the, the the idea that the people uh, should be the the body to whom the state has to go to ratify what it's doing that idea has has just not been there uh, through the Chinese tradition. The Chinese tradition, the Confucian tradition, is very much one in which um, educated members of the elite are understand that it's their moral responsibility to create conditions for the for the best welfare of the people. So it's very much a kind of paternalistic view of what you should do. The idea that somehow it lies with the people to direct the government, this is an idea that simply is, has not been there in the Chinese tradition. And you're right, at the time of the 1911 revolution and through the 1910s, there was this idea that maybe, maybe uh, a different model was going to be needed, that, that maybe the old Confucian model was not a way to go. And, but in fact, um, democratic institutions in China continue to be very weak. Uh, people generally are not invited to give a voice. It's very much a kind of top-down paternalistic system. And, um, and most Chinese are culturally accustomed uh, to accepting that as the way in which, uh, the, way in which the country should be. It's kind of ironic, too, that in the age when we have so much information with Facebook connecting, I know Facebook is not used in China, but so many different, the Internet and so many freedom. I know China also blocks the Internet to a degree, but people can get around that. But so much information is available to people, and yet China's going in reverse. And now you have President Xi essentially saying that even the 10-year term that was supposedly, you know, most Chinese leaders had agreed to since um, since Mao's death, or at least since uh, Deng's death, that's been taken away. So now it looks like he's president yeah. for life, sort of another Mao. So we're sort of going back to where we were, in, I guess, in the 60s, in a way. Well, it, it, sometimes it feels like that. Um, the, 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 uh, the Internet has been a good thing in many ways, but one thing it is not, it's not a foundation for the creation of human freedom. Um, the Internet is tightly controlled in China. I, was, I remember the first time I was in China after the controls were put in, and I tried to, I think I went on Google just to look something up, and I thought, why can't I get on Google? What's the problem here? Um, the Chinese Internet is carefully controlled, and, and as we know from all of this stuff about fake news in the last year or two, um, the Chinese Internet is full of fake news. It's an entirely controlled, self-contained aquarium in which Chinese people can only find out what they're allowed to find out. So, in fact, um, despite the Internet, despite all these thousands of news sources, Chinese can't get access to that. So they're living in their own little bubble, and that works, you know, that works very much for the leadership. So somebody like uh, Xi Jinping comes along, and, he's, and if the choice is um, increase the opportunities for people to understand the world and make their own decisions, or let the technocratic elite 
stay in control and keep uh, uh, allowing the kind of corruption that has, has become sensational over the last couple of decades in China. Which one is he going to choose? He's going to, he's going to choose the highly centralized control, and he's not interested in the people making their own decisions. He wants to make all those decisions for them. Um, and and the, the notion that, that he should be exempt from the uh, term limits on earlier presidents, I, th- I think, is a very bad sign for the future of Chinese politics. What it's saying is that the tiny elite just wants to stay as tiny as it can. It doesn't want to admit any other factions. Um, in the background, though, um, I'm sure the factional struggle at the top of the Communist Party at the moment is, is phenomenal. Um, and she is using every tool he can to keep himself in power. It'll fall apart eventually. These things always do. But he's he's in it for the... He's in it for the long run, at least for the moment. When you say it will fall apart, do you mean that his power will fall apart or the Communist Party will eventually fall apart and China will have some change in the next 50 or 100 years? Well, you see, the trouble is you're talking to a historian. And as a historian, I look back in the past and I see nothing that has been, that has been permanent. I see nothing that hasn't changed. Um, of course, the Chinese Communist Party will eventually no longer exist. I can't tell you how long that's going to take. Um, in the sort of in the medium term, I think uh, whatever faction she is leading in the party will lose power, um, and it'll probably happen in a very surprising and unpredictable way. There will be a crisis that isn't controlled. So, in a sense, this is going to take us back now to 1989. Uh, I think that's what Deng Xiaoping was afraid of. That 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 the the, Tiananmen, the students in Tiananmen Square had become the kind of joker in the pack. And if he couldn't control that, he couldn't control his position or his faction's position in the leadership. So Xi Jinping is, I think, sensing the same thing. So he, he, can't, let, he can't let anything happen because the moment something happens, the old consensus may fall apart and, and, and he may lose power. Would you say the anti-corruption thing that Xi is doing, and I believe President Xi's sister owns substantial amounts of money, too, according to the New York Times. But anyway, the anti-corruption that he's leading is essentially two-pronged as A, to legitimately clamp down on some corruption, and B, to sort of purge his enemies and consolidate his control. Is that a, would, would you agree with that? I think you've got about that about right. Anti-corruption in China is always a way to go after your enemies in the leadership. Um, uh, corruption is a major problem in the Chinese economy, but the economy is corrupt and the justice system are corrupt from top to bottom. It's how the system works. It's the oil that makes things go around in that system. And um, she can't stop that. It's beyond the capacity of any state leader to stop it. But what he can do is he can, he can finger all the people he wants removed from the upper echelons of power and there is a corruption case to be made against every leader in China. He's going to be very selective about which ones he goes for. He seems to have been pretty effective and also in rallying, and also recently to rallying nationalism and also hatred for the Japanese, and which obviously wasn't yeah. much of a factor for a lot of the post-war, but then they, they found it con- uh, convenient to use that. And also militarizing these islands in the South China Sea. Do you see it? I mean, do you think there's any chance that China would actually invade Taiwan, for example? Or I know the new leader of the Philippines, Duterte, has sort of tolerated that because they've uh, island building because they've gotten um, hoping for investment. But Taiwan obviously is quite afraid. I think Clinton put two aircraft carriers between Taiwan and China years ago, 20 years ago. Is there much of a chance they would actually take an aggressive action like that? Oh, that's one of those questions I hate to try and answer because uh, I think it's it's entirely possible that if something went 
happened on Taiwan that the central leadership in Beijing didn't like, they would do something about it. Um, it's so hard to know. I mean, it, there would have to be a larger geostrategic calculation about this. To invade Taiwan would be hugely offensive to the United States. But under the current presidency, you can't predict what the United States is going to do anyway. So, um, in fact, if you had a more if if you had a more rational person in the in, in the Oval Office, I think the Chinese would be much more cautious about about uh, getting involved in foreign adventures. But, really but interesting. With, but with Trump there, um, the game is always the the deck is always being shuffled. The game is is always moving. Um, I think this is why Kim in North Korea has been doing what he's been doing. Uh, he's been able to read Trump very well. Uh, he's not been as successful in reading Xi Jinping. I think Xi Jinping has pulled him back uh, because he is a client of the Chinese in, in the end. Um, but we're, the, the, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of going in this direction because I think we're in a very unpredictable moment. Um, it, what, what is certain is that if there is a major geostrategic move on China's part, it will have a very negative impact on their economy. Um, she is aware of this, so he does not want he does not want the economy to to you know have markets close international markets close on Chinese goods or anything like that because if that happens then he's got the kind of dissatisfaction that will express itself and then threaten his power so um, so I think in the, in in the near term, China is not going to do anything about Taiwan. Status quo is always what they prefer. In looking back at the history of China, with the exception of Tibet, which obviously had some ties to China before Mao invaded, and people can argue to what extent historically, but with that exception, obviously with the warring states period of consolidation of different states, but does China throughout its history generally have a history of not attacking other states, other sovereign countries? The idea that China does not attack other countries is very, uh, it, it, it's a truism that's very much at the heart of the Confucian view of things. But uh, Chinese leaders aren't Confucians, really. They are, they are pragmatic realists, and if it's in China's interest to attack a foreign state, China will attack a foreign state. Um, uh, you have only to look at a map of China in 1600, 1700, 1800 to see that China tripled in size. Now you don't triple in size by um, opening your arms to your friends around the world and having them join you. Uh, <laughs> right. China was China is the size it is because military power was used to incorporate vast territories around the original core of China. But of other Han so, Chinese, right? Yeah. So so there's no. Um, China is no more averse to using military force against foreign powers than any other state uh, that has the military capacity to do so. Okay. Uh, well, just um, as we wrap up, Professor Brooker, one question. Just in, in summarizing, obviously, what happened with Tiananmen Square, and obviously going back to Deng Xiaoping, who was such a mm -hmm. seminal leader, and he was purged, I think, twice by Mao, and his, his son obviously was thrown out the window during the Cultural Revolution, and all the turmoil. Does, does what happened in Tiananmen Square evaporate any, in, your, in your eyes, anything good that he did? Does it or does it? Does he have any uh, final conclusion on that? Well, I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not going to condemn condemn Dung a hundred percent for everything he did. I thought that that the suppression of the student movement was a miscalculation on his part. But uh, he was old, and frankly, he was he was afraid of what was happening. Um, to his own power, um, so it was a miscalculation. It's not to say that he. 
his leadership didn't do something that China needed to have done. But um, I wouldn't want to say that, that, that Deng's reputation stands or falls on Tiananmen. Uh, I, I wouldn't go that far, but I think it's a, uh, it's a black mark in his record, and it's a mark that we should never remove. You would think they could have used tear gas or another way. That's your contention, right? Didn't have to use live bullets. And for the reasons we discussed, they did that. Yeah, or or they or uh, they could have actually uh, much earlier, before any of this got to where it got to, they could have negotiated um, some kind of um, a way out. They could have diffused the situation uh, weeks before they sent in the army. And but, funny, um, that's what Zhao tried to do, and then he spent the rest of his life in jail, yeah. right? Well, exactly. Uh, Zhao Ziyang, who was a kind of competitor with Deng Xiaoping in the Central Committee, wanted to go the route of negotiation, and uh, Deng shut him down. Deng wouldn't let him do it. Uh, the option was there, and, and, and I, it's, it's one of those roads not taken, and if it had been taken, China's course would, be, would have been very different, um, and it would have not have been a course to disaster. It would have been a course in which Chinese people did prosper, but that they prospered through the operation of institutions that actually cared about what they needed and what they felt, and that allowed the Chinese people to be part of their future, not simply the recipients of whatever the Communist Party wanted to give them. Excellent. Well, Professor Brooke, thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate it for your, uh, letting us your, um, talking about your book and all your wisdom on China. Thank you very much, and uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Bye-bye. Served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them. And make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. Today's entertainment has been brought to you in part by Galito's Restaurant. Galito's specializes in Portuguese cuisine. In addition to these delicacies, Galito's offers pasta, steaks, seafood, and chops. A full-service bar includes wines, beers, and spirits to complement your meal. Galito's offers casual ambiance at the bar or their dining room. 
Kalitos also has a private banquet room for social events with a party package to accommodate your budget. Kalitos also offers seasonal cafe seating. Kalitos is located at 29 Elm Avenue in Mount Vernon, New York, conveniently located across from the Mount Vernon East train station. You can call Galitos at area code 914-668-0100. Once again, the number is area code 914-668-0100 for information on reservations. Or go to the website at www.galitosrestaurant.com. Enjoy your dining experience. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine, the Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City and is known as the home for big-name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week. Fabulous award-winning Broadway, TV, film, and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 115-seat elegant venue. Aside from the great highly professional artistic shows and audience, Metropolitan Room provides an exceptional appetizer and dessert menu as well as exotic and specialty drinks prepared by top New York City bartenders. The Metropolitan Room is located at 34 West 22nd Street, Conveniently located near public transportation. For information or reservations, call area code 212-206-0440. Once again, the area code is 212-206-0440. Or go to their website at www.metropolitanroom.com. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine, the Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City and is known as the home for big-name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week. Fabulous award-winning Broadway, TV, film, and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 115-seat elegant venue. Aside from the great highly professional artistic shows and audience, Metropolitan Room provides an exceptional appetizer and dessert menu as well as exotic and specialty drinks prepared by top New York City bartenders. The Metropolitan Room is located at 34 West 22nd Street, Conveniently located near public transportation. For information or reservations, call area code 212-206-0440. Once again, the area code is 212-206-0440. Or go to their website at www.metropolitanroom.com. On Thursday, May 15th, Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen, New York's largest emergency food program, is hosting From Farm to Tray, a sustainable food benefit. To support hungry New Yorkers, please visit farmtotray.org to purchase tickets or make a donation. 
Guests out from farm to tray will dine in the beautiful landmark Holy Apostles Church, a space that New York Times journalist Anna Quinlan named the most majestic dining room in New York City. Visit farmtotray.org for details. See you at the soup kitchen. Sparky the Fire Dog here. Protect your family from fire. Make sure your home has smoke alarms in every bedroom, outside your sleeping areas, and on every level of your home, even your basement. For games and activities, go to sparky.org. We want to keep you, your family, and your community safer from fire. This message brought to you by the National Fire Protection Association and your local fire department. Visit sparky.org. On Thursday, May 15th, Holy Apostles Soup Kitchen, New York's largest emergency food program, is hosting From Farm to Tray, a sustainable food benefit. To support hungry New Yorkers, please visit farmtotray.org to purchase tickets or make a donation. Guests at Farm to Tray will dine in the beautiful landmark Holy Apostles Church, a space that New York Times journalist Anna Quinlan named the most majestic dining room in New York City. Visit farmtotray.org for details. Hi there, I'm Tim McGraw. One of the great things about music is how it brings people together. Kids like to hang out, listen to music, and talk about what's hot and what's not on the music scene. And playing instruments and singing provides a way for young people to get together and interact in a cooperative and respectful way. Kids who play in school ensembles understand that every part has to work together for the result to be the magical art called music. Your local school music programs provide a golden opportunity for your child to experience the rewards of learning music. Why not pay a visit to the music teacher to find out what's going on? Get your kids involved with school music. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, Gibson Musical Instruments, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. If you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA health care facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them and make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education.
Today's entertainment has been brought to you in part by Galito's Restaurant. Galito's specializes in Portuguese cuisine. In addition to these delicacies, Galito's offers pasta, steaks, seafood, and chops. A full-service bar includes wines, beers, and spirits to complement your meal. Galito's offers casual ambiance at the bar or their dining room. Galito's also has a private banquet room for social events with a party package to accommodate your budget. Galito's also offers seasonal cafe seating. Galito's is located at 29 Elm Avenue in Mount Vernon, New York, conveniently located across from the Mount Vernon East train station.